from 11FS. I'm Ross Gallagher and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Philip Hammond's Fintech strategy, we round up the best of the week's Fintech announcements, and Michael Sheen quits acting and goes vigilante. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Aldgate. I'm Ross Gallagher and I'm joined by my wonderful colleague and co-host Simon Taylor. Simon, how are you doing? I am caffeinated and ready to go, sir. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. I'm excited for this show. But enough about us. Let's introduce our guests. Joining us today, we have Ryan Garner, 11FS Innovation and Insight Lead, and today making his FinTech Insider debut. Welcome to the show, Ryan. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Awesome. We've also got Monty Munford, journalist and just all-round guru. Monty, how are you doing? Hangover. <laughs> Terrific. Moving swiftly on. Making her FinTech Insider debut as well, it's MD of Rainmaking Collab, Elaine Panzerina. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have you all. We've got an awesome lineup. Um, okay, FinTech Insider News. Let's go. Um, so our first story today... Uh, talks about Philip Hammond's fintech strategy. So this was submitted to Finn by Barb McLean. Hey, Barb, big fan of the show. Um, so Philip Hammond is launching a strategy for Britain's fintech sector this week, announcing it at the International Fintech Conference run by the Treasury. Simon, do you want to tell us a little bit about this? You were there? Yeah, so there were a couple of key initiatives. The first one was uh, establishing closer links with the Australian government, something called a fintech bridge, which this is where um, both the central banks, the regulators, the Treasury departments will work together on policy, um, but also trade missions. How do we help companies from Australia come here? How do you help companies uh, from here go to Australia? Uh, And really doing that sort of stuff a lot more. Uh, a couple of other initiatives were a crypto asset task force. So how do different parts of the UK government get together, uh, so the Bank of England, the FCA, Treasury, and really look at that subject in a, in a, in a sensible and mature way. Something called robo-regulation, uh, which helps uh, fintech firms in the financial services industry more widely comply with regulations by building software which would automatically ensure they follow the rules, uh, which is interesting, and and several other bits and pieces underneath that. I'm curious, though, um, Lynn, you were there in the room. What was your takeaway from from some of this stuff? Uh, Well, actually, on the regulatory robo-software, I found myself thinking about who's responsible. Is the software responsible (laughs) if if somebody misses a regulation? I think we all know that there are mountains of regulations in banks. Not everyone knows exactly whether they are compliant because there's so many. So maybe this is a help in that regard. We'll see. Uh, on the bridge, it's fantastic. We've got a few bridges already. Uh, hopefully not over troubled waters. But uh, this bridge is to Australia. We had our outlaws go there before, as it were. Maybe this time we'll be sending our... Oh, our much more qualified companies. Yeah, because we have one with Singapore, with China, with, with several yeah. others. And this is this is something that's kind of a well-trodden path. Um, and I think we'll see more of that. And, uh, and and hopefully we do. That robo-regulation point you make is kind of interesting, though, because the, the, I mean, I think the fundamental problem they're trying to solve is this idea that if you're a small company, sometimes it's very hard to comply with regulations. And also, since 2008, the financial crisis, there's been an absolute slew of regulations coming down the pipes from Parcel 3 to Mifid 2. They all have a number, it seems. But the, all, of these, all of these regulations with numbers, they've been hard for big banks to deal with. And typically, it meant spreadsheets and meetings and time and lawyers and bah. That's expensive. Small companies can't do that stuff. And big companies, it's expensive. So at least it's an attempt to solve that. 
It is. Maybe instead of regulation with numbers, we need regulation by numbers. Ooh. I love that. Simon, why don't we talk a little bit about the, uh, the Crypto Assets Task Force? Yeah, I think this one's quite simple, This, but, but this comes on the back of uh, the last couple of weeks, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, came out and said, uh, both from the Bank of England's perspective, but also from the Financial Stability Board's perspective, which is kind of more global um, and was set up again after the financial crisis, that crypto assets are such a small part of the economy, less than 1%. They're not that dangerous to the economy itself. They might be dangerous to people that are you know, kind of abusing them or that are spending money they can't afford to lose. But they're not that worried. And the thing I really like about this is actually its name. It's called a Crypto Assets Task Force. It's not called a Cryptocurrency Task Force. And this speaks to me to the maturing of the debate. And Monty, you mentioned you've seen the debate maturing around the world. I I saw the hysteria of stuff and it just drives me mad. But I saw a Senate, I don't know if it's a Senate hearing, but it was a Senate testimony on cryptocurrencies. Um, it was 90 minutes long. I saw it right until the end. And I just heard one side of really mature, interesting, smart people, curious about the other side, and the other side being just as curious about the other side. And it was just, at last, Americans do these things really well, right, when it comes to those type of hearings. Um, and I just kind of think it should be... I don't know, almost like a, a set text for people when they want to know about what's going on with cryptocurrencies and how to debate in a sensible, non-hysterical way. I, was, I thought it was, it was really refreshing. It's nice that we've gotten past the, oh, it's all for terrorists and it's anonymous, isn't it, into, oh, this is an interesting technology. There are some challenges with it, but there are giant opportunities as well. We need to understand it better. And Absolutely, and I think one of the things that it was the, the kids that were making the dads think differently. They were saying, like, I can't get my kids in, interested in stocks and shares. But they're doing crypto kid stuff, you know, and Revolut or whatever, you know, it's the mini trading. Uh, and, you know, so we can be thankful for the kids, I think, you know, yeah, at that time. Always. And let's call the elephant in the room, though. This, All of these initiatives are kind of post-Brexit, right? This is the, hey, London is open story. This is what we, this is uh, us putting our best foot forward and a slew of policies. The UK historically has been good at policy in fintech i dare i say i think it's been really good and there's no lack of them here i mean this is this is a good old bunch of them um and when i heard um philip hammond speak earlier i mean he was rolling out the stats six of the top 20 universities in the world um one of the europe's top technology center but you got the tech right next to finance right next to government right next to the universities there's a lot of a lot of things going for london still uh, but there are real challenges around talent uh, which is why i like this connect with work program um, and to help to firms take advantage of the diverse workforce and we, we should probably see more there Agreed. I, I think this is um, this is a key part of you know Simon to your point. What what is actually quite a coherent set of initiatives. Um, I completely agree. Um, and obviously, I suppose harnessing yes the talent that is um, coming through the universities, but I guess also retraining people who've been in other industries um, and 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 harnessing that, and I, I guess putting that to the greater good of fintech as well. Could I just add a little plug for my mate Mike Butcher from TechCrunch? Um, they launched last week um, something called Tech Vets. So it's veterans from, you know, the Army and the Navy, Royal Air Force, who are shameless, shamefully treated in this country. Uh, and basically the programme is to try and re-educate them in cybersecurity. So I just thought that was quite a nice thing. 
You know, that sort of initiative of taking the talent you've got, taking people and, and reworking it, 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 the good initiative. Absolutely. So I'm going to say more. I was going to say some, some of the talent question comes up when you do panels, when I do panels on funding. And today there was a, a, an uh, extension of EIS. There'll be more coming out of EIS. There was the patient capital funding. There was. Can you just explain for listeners what EIS is and what patient capital is? Because I think those terms, we use them in, in the insiders a lot, but some listeners might not be familiar. So the enterprise investment scheme, and we have the seed enterprise investment scheme, which is the early investment scheme for companies where there are tax incentives for investors. And it helps to keep the money in there for at least three years, a little bit longer for the company. So they're not getting a call from Uncle Henry in the middle of the night saying, can I have my money back? Uh, there was a, a question about whether or not after Brexit they would extend the parameters or the borders of these schemes so that people could invest more, which we had, I think, in the spring statement. They said they were going to extend the, the boundaries and whether or not you came to the UK to set up your business because the tax incentives were good and whether you got dumb money or smart money, so money that was help, not very helpful or very helpful to your business. And was that a good reason for people to stay here? And would they go to the US or somewhere else for their next round of money? So now we're getting into again today, they spoke about the British Business Bank, uh, putting it, investing institutional investing, co-investing, and longer having the capital for a longer period of time. In the old model of investing, five to seven years, you're expected to get out, do something, provide a return. And we can see from companies like TransferWise, who took, what, 10 years to get to a point where we're seeing profit? That's not your standard model. We do need more patient money to be able to get the return. Um, I'd like, what's the difference between EIS and SEIS? I've never, I've never asked for some ridiculous reason. The seed, the SEIS is the earlier round with a smaller amount of money. Um, and that when you're on, on the panels, because I also lecture at three universities in London in fintech and also at Rainmaking, we have education both on and offline in fintech sort of 101. It's always a question after Brexit. I, you can hear from my accent. I'm not from here, but my passport is actually Italian. So, <laughs> so I'm some of the talent from, <laughs> from outside of the UK, whether or not we would be able to retain it. And many of the fintechs were set up by people from outside the UK who chose to make their home here because it is a great place, as they said this morning, to set up a fintech. That's a good story. It's great, but it's also it's it's so key that this is something that we actually implement and not just sort of pay lip service, which I think you know we've we've probably seen just to date, and 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 to to wrap it in a little bit of um, of actual certainty at this point as well, I think. Um, so from the Chancellor's fintech plans to uh, some good news from several UK fintechs. So. Um, We'll start with Tide. Uh, Tide has rebranded and has launched a new card design and is now authorized as an electronic money institution. So what I like about this, Tide wants to liberate customers from banking, admin and everything else they don't want to be doing when running their businesses. Um, they claim to have um, accounts open within two minutes, 14 seconds. That's Weirdly the specific. Fastest. Really, really, really specific. A little note here from producer Laura, minutes, not months. I quite like that. And actually is probably quite symbolic of what is going on in the incumbent space here. And they've also launched team cards, which allows small businesses, medium businesses to give up to 35 colleagues a Tide card and then the employee can, the employer can track the employee spending from within the app. What, what do, do we, you think about this one, Ryan? Yeah, I love it. I think, uh, firstly, the card design's great. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, they've uh, flipped the card. So instead of having a horizontal card, they've got a vertical card um, to reflect how people use 
payment cards because you oh. plug it into a machine, you tap it, and uh, the the design is very clean. All the details are on the back. Um, the logo is right in the centre, and it looks really, really fresh. And if you think about the things you carry around in your pocket, it's your phone, it's your keys, and it's your wallet, and you pull out the card, and it looks like something that that is desirable or that feels a little bit exclusive. It's, it gets it's that almost conversation that sort of going. Hot coral effect with Monzo all over again. But isn't it weird how card design is now so important? The card used to be like, here's the thing with the logo of the bank that you're with on it. Now it's here's the way you differentiate how a customer wants to signal to uh, the society what they stand for. But isn't this something that the fintechs have picked up on that actually the incumbents didn't? And that's the actually the physical card. It's a, it's a key customer touchpoint. It is. I think it always had the logo. It always had the brand. I mean, Barclays a few years ago did that thing where you could put a picture of your kids on the card, yeah, which was nice, nice, but it was a gimmick, right? It was, I mean, Monty's face says it all right now. It's just, it was a gimmick. But I think it's, it's slightly strange kind of, what's the word, trying to, oh God, I really can't think. But it's the same with landscape pictures. Everyone used to take landscape pictures. It wasn't until Instagram that everyone started to yeah. use and that has now become how people take pictures in the same way as that you described about the card. So culturally, I think it's going to be hugely important. And if you say it is fresh, as you mm. said, I might have a look at one. Yeah, have a look. I think the m- more interesting story around this the is The word I was looking for was compare, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that feeling when the word comes to you after the fact. Damn it, you got, I could feel you grasping with your mind for the word. Yeah, I think the more interesting story around this is that Tide have done a rebrand, and it feels like only recently that they launched and so 15 months 15 months yeah so they've had product in the hands of customers they're clearly getting um insights back from their those customers the rebrand um looks fresh it looks very consumer orientated which kind of makes sense because they're targeting small medium-sized businesses um a lot of those kind of freelancers potentially still on consumer-based accounts. And so this looks much more friendly. The messaging is much tighter. And some of the features you mentioned at the start seem to be kind of much more uh, aligned to kind of customer needs rather than a, an it MVP. It is customer needs. And I think what we've seen in the particularly the, the small business banking space has been almost um, the bank as a, as a sort of blocker. And, and, and this seems to me about, you know, what they're looking at is let's get the bank out of the way and actually how do, how do we support you in terms of running your business? Okay, um, so moving on. Um, Pocket Lockbox promises to help the UK's unbanked improve their credit score. So look, as an initiative, I think this speaks to like a real... Um, a real issue around financial exclusion, and 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 I really like this. So um, the idea is that um, you purchase a pocket lock lockbox voucher worth twelve times your monthly contribution, and you pay a one-off setup cost of nine pounds ninety-nine. You then pay the voucher back in um, twelve monthly instalments, uh, and you get all of your money back at the end. And it gets reported to the credit reference agencies. Um, that you're paying back a form of credit. So, Helene, we talked about this as sort of faux loan. What are your thoughts? I think it's fantastic. I agree with you. I think it's a great initiative because that is one of the trickiest things, isn't it? To get a credit rating in the first place and then to be able to build one up. And everyone would always tell you to go to any number of card companies that would charge you upwards of 30, 39.9%, which you're in that situation anyway. You can't afford it. And this is something I've, I really, I watched family members struggle. It's very... Uh, personal for me when I see this. So I think it's fantastic. 
Great. So um, anyone interested in hearing more from their CEO, Viraj Jitania, uh, check out episode 185 on Fintech Insiders. It sounds like a really good thing as well when it comes to that whole credit score stuff. It seems a bit like kind of, I have a teenage kid doing drama, so he's getting UCAS points. So when he goes to do a degree, so it's not the main kind of what you're, you know, based on. But I think it sounds fantastic. About time, by the way. And it's a fairly sizable problem as well. There's a, a research report released recently by Experian that said there's 4 million people in the UK with a thin file credit report. Yeah, this is a real issue. Which is massive. Um, and there's one, 1. 1.2 million of those are likely to suffer a downward trend in their income in the next year, which means they're going to be suffering the problems you, you talked about, like less access to credit. And when they do get access to it, it's a really extortionate rates. And, and so that's a spiral then with, um, so the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute have also seen that that can not only negatively impact uh, just your your financial outcomes, but your outcomes in terms of your mental health, your outcomes in terms of career prospects, and and, and all of that gets affected. And it leads to a much bigger social issue, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a bigger issue here around credit reference agencies in general? Are we relying essentially on what is a proxy of credit worthiness rather than actually understanding? But I think you were saying that it's affecting people in your, you know, there may be 4 million people that are unbanked or finding it difficult. There's been a lot of people that have been skint in their lives. Mm. I, I clearly, I've been skint a few times. I think you need to be to kind of enjoy <laughs> the other side of it anyway. Um, but, and I was lucky that I didn't fall down that pit, you, you know, very lucky actually. Well, I suppose I did a bit actually as well. Um, but when you, you kind of ex- excluded to that, to the extent that everything is more expensive when you want something cheap, to, uh, it's the complete opposite you of know what, what you I mean want, right? it's just like basically yeah. fucking people over you know? it's the same idea of sort of like um, getting charged for insufficient funds yeah you know the, the, exactly. there's a wider issue here and punitive fees for not having enough money but actually you get all the benefits if you got a lot of money it, it is there's, there's a there's a balancing of the business case that from an authenticity standpoint from a transparency standpoint could be done from a brand perspective like actually as a brand not being a dick could be a useful thing because then I win more customers and my customers are more loyal to me which impacts my net promoter score like this doesn't just have to be hey be nice for the sake of being nice hey be nice to be a charity hey be nice because it's good for business long term and now there are alternatives like pocket and fintechs that that could actually start really eating into your business agreed it's an awesome point so um Next up on the show, Oak North becomes the first UK fintech to report an annual profit. So um, the that's the first of the UK's digital-focused challenger banks to report an annual profit, recording a pre-tax gain of 10.6 million after its second full year in operations, uh, during which time it also tripled the size of its loan book over the period to 851.5 million, while customer deposits more than doubled to 491 million. I think they're really nice, Oak North. The people there, and those figures are good, but it still does sound like a tube station, Oak North. <laughs> they need you need to change the name. Agreed, Sorry. agreed. But for me, this is a real this is a real good story for UK fintech. It's profitable. Um, so Rishi was talking earlier at the the fintech conference and talked about like that gap. So if you're a really 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 small business, you can get lending. If you're a really large business, you can get lending. If you're somewhere in the middle and you're looking to scale, it's very hard to finance your business. And Oak North plays there and themselves have become profitable. And kind of linking to the last story, as we were just saying a second ago, 
Big banks hadn't really been worried about fintech. They were seen as at the fringes and at the margins. Actually, now there are profitable businesses out there that are solving problems, but that could also eventually start to make a difference. I mean, if you were to ask the incumbents of 20 years ago or the, the telco sector of 10 years ago, well, who are you worried about? It probably wasn't the people that disrupted them. And that's often the case again. If you ask the big banks who they're worried about, it's Google and Facebook. It's not these companies, which may be a mistake. It is. I think it is a mistake. Um, and you know, as we said, this this proves that these these businesses, these types of businesses, are capturing people's imaginations and can be profitable. And again, so it is a um, it is a, it's a it's a definitely a good news story. It's a victory for fintech. It's also a victory for tech because you know what they've done. You know, is um, minimalize um, the sort of risk when they're 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 building uh, risk portfolios, risk um, profiles for these guys, and um, you know they've they've built a, a business model that's super sustainable. Yeah, I'm really pleased with them. It's a really important thing, and um, we're trying to stimulate growth in this country right now. And one of the best ways we can do that is to help small to medium sized businesses. And this is a great way of giving them the capital to grow their business. And we've got to remember that the SME market is 99% of all businesses in this country, and it employs 60% of all people. And turns over like 50% of all revenue. So like it's a massively important area. Um, and, you know, companies like this... Uh, I well, really I mean, it's just like a wholly underserved sector. Exactly. It's one that's been completely neglected, right, for so long. And people are waking up to it now. You know my feelings. I wrote the book, Business Funding for Dummies. It's all about SME funding. It's my passion area. Uh, and I think Rishi said this morning they created 5,000 new homes and 4,000 new jobs, and they're looking at 2018 to, to lend a billion. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't get into there is a reliance on the, on housing or on the building market. That's 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 a whole, whole other story. But I think there are so many SME banks that are coming out soon as well. My one concern is differentiation because SME owners are busy people that don't really, you know, if you make shoes and you make jewelry and you make clothes, do you want to go around comparing all the different things that are on offer? No. My question actually would be to you, the, 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 this clustering, you know, it's like sometimes Hollywood knocks out three Robin Hood films in a year, that kind of mentality. Why is it suddenly that everyone is creating these SME services? Why is it? Why has this sector suddenly become wanted? Is it a, a collection of things or is it any one particular? My personal feeling is that they went for what was the low-hanging fruit in the 2012s, 2013s, 2014s. You went for consumers, you went for peer-to-peer -peer lending, you went for remittances and payments because it was something that everybody could do. Now they've kind of, it's, it's a bit like we talked about blockchain back in 2014 and everyone just parked it for a while saying 2020 was going to be the moment. But the SME market, as we've all said, has been completely underserved. It also kind of coincided with open banking where we're supposed to be having more personalized, individualized offerings and product and service for consumers and SMEs because the bank referral scheme didn't do it. So I think it's a bit of timing and a bit of it's an opportune moment. So for, I guess, the insider story, um, Oak North's own Valentina Christensen was a guest on this week's Fintech Insider on air talking about this very story. So let's hear from her now. I'm here with Valentina Christensen, Director of Growth and Communications at Oak North. Hello. Uh, who's had a bit of a busy week. Yes, yeah, it's been a very busy week. I think, uh, yeah, UK Fintech Week, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fintech out, I think, almost. Is that possible? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, after Innovate Finance, which was uh, which was great on Monday and Tuesday, um, I went to a few uh, different um, uh, sort of lectures. Uh, one with uh, Jane Angadia from um, CEO of Virgin Money, uh, and then we had the international, the Treasury's International FinTech Conference today, where um, our CEO was giving a keynote. So, 
yeah, it's been, I've met some fantastic people. It's been a very, very busy week. Um, and we put out our, um, our annual results yesterday as well. Yeah, so tell me about your, your news about profitability because profitability and challenger banks aren't, aren't <laughs> words that are used yeah. in, the, in the same sentence very oh, often. Profitability and fintech, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so basically um, we, we reached cash flow break even in month 11 of operations. That was back in um, August 2016. So, so break that out for us. What is cash flow break even? So that's essentially where on a month by month basis you are um, that you're sort of putting out as much as you're taking in. Okay. Um, you're not sort of making money, but you're not loss making. Okay. Um, and to reach the full profitability, um, that was 2017 was our full year of doing that. So we made 10.6 million uh, prof, pre-tax profit in, in 2017. And does that does that take into account what you'd spent already? Um, yeah. So that's where we've repaid all of our accrued debts and accrued losses um, before you turn two years old. Wow. So I'm sure you've had lots of questions as to how do you do that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's a couple of things, really. I mean, we, we've we taken a very frugal approach since the very beginning. I mean, you've been to our offices. There's nothing nothing fancy about them. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they function. Um, and I think, you know, that's definitely something that Rishi and Joel, our co-founders, have installed from the very, from the very top, from the top down. Um, you know, I think another part of it is the fact that about a third of people within the company are actually shareholders in the business. Mm. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, obviously a lot of fintechs will give employees potentially, you know, bonus equity or mm. um, share options when they join. Um, OpenOff, in addition to doing that, uh, gives employees the chance to actually buy equity. Mm-hmm. And it's a totally different thing, I think, a shift in mindset when you put sort of your own money into the business, you know, as opposed to maybe putting it on a deposit on a house or, mm. you know, for a holiday or whatever it might be. And I think that does make you negotiate just that bit harder and, and care that much more. So I think it's a combination of things, you know, it's, it's being frugal, it's, it's uh, you know, negotiating on, on pretty much everything. Um, and then we've also obviously used um, technology. So being fully cloud hosted has enabled us to mm. uh, scale very effectively, but keep keep costs down as opposed to having uh, multiple servers. But I guess you you also found that uh, that niche in the market in terms of uh, good, sizable businesses that had great fundamentals that needed to borrow cash that were in some way. Uh, a little small for the the big commercial lenders. I would say actually it's not even that they're they're a bit too small because the loans we're doing are sort of between a half million up to thirty million. Um, they're scale up businesses, you know, rather than sort of startup businesses. They're profitable, mm-hmm. cash flow positive. It's that um, typically what you find in the market is that it takes we hear sort of four to six months to get a no, mm-hmm. and six to nine months to get a yes. And mm-hmm. if you say for example a restaurant owner, you've got five sites. And you're looking, you know, you found the next two sites, perfect place for your next opening. Um, and the seller wants to sell in the next six weeks. You know, mm. you can just forget about getting that loan mm. um, from your big bank in, in sort of that time frame. So the sort of gap in the market that we're filling is that we're, yeah, that we're much faster. I mean, we're certainly not uh, the cheapest. I mean, we're not quite at the sort of debt fund level, which mm. is double digits. But we're not, um, you know, the sort of big incumbent bank type level mm. in terms of rates. Um, we'd probably be sort of one or two percentage points more. But it's the speed, and what we find is entrepreneurs are willing to sort of pay that little bit more to get the loan. On average, we, we complete loans in three weeks. Yeah, it's interesting, even from opening a business account, mm-hmm. which can take a few months, and you see Tide coming along, and arguably yeah. one of their key features is you can open an account in five minutes, which instantly gets an inflow of customers, even if they offered yeah. just what every other business banker would have. Yeah, and I think that's also, you know, that's that's where the technology piece is so important. You know, what enables us to do those transactions in sort of three weeks on average is is essentially the Acorn machine platform that we that we built mm-hmm. for, for Oak North that we're now commercializing. But um, leveraging big data and machine learning in order to do credit analysis at speed and scale 
And that's, I think, a big part of what's helped us. But I guess that wasn't there at the start. And my interpretation would be that, you know, you had that um, that group of people who were experienced enough, they could look at all the data and make a much quicker decision, be that expert underwriter slash VCP yeah. style thing of yes, no, um, let's move on. Yeah, and I think also, you know, it's again sort of backing, I guess, the fintech trend because it, we obviously use data to help inform our credit decisions, but mm. then we meet borrowers face to face and that yes. part's really important and that's sort of more similar to what you'd find in a private equity model. Um, you know, we've had situations where on paper we've thought, you know, absolutely, it's a done right. deal. You know, we're just meeting the team to sort of say hello. And then we've met the founders or the, the the senior management team and they're, you know, completely misaligned in terms of their approach. They don't be singing off the same hymn sheet at all, um, going in totally different directions. And then equally, you've had scenarios where on paper it's been, you know, just about enough in terms of financials for us to feel comfortable. And then we've met the team and been like, you know, 100%. This brilliant team. They, they're right. really aligned in their strategy and, um, you know, they're all moving in the same direction. So is your sort of ACORN model uh, machine learning, is it modeling Rishi and Joel? Are you, are you, <laughs> are you converting them into some bots? <laughs> no, I mean, essentially with ACORN machine, it's, it's sort of, we said, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a UK problem. I mean, SME sure. lending isn't something that, uh, you know, is, is, is an issue just here. Um, it is something that it's a challenge everywhere. And so we said, if we could sort of package up that IP, that that uh, that tech platform, and then enable banks and lending institutions in other markets to essentially do what we're doing with you, with SME lending here in the UK in their own geographies, and I think we've been very surprised because you know this only sort of started in, in we only sort of started conversations in August last year, expecting probably about eighty percent of the conversations to be with you know new challenger banks who basically want to build Oak North in mm-hmm. their own country. Um, and then 20% would be big incumbents who want to, you know, make the process more efficient. It's actually been the other way around. About 80% are very large institutions mm-hmm. who are saying it's taking us, you know, nine months to do a loan at the moment. If you can help us reduce that to sort of one, two months, you'll be saving us a lot of money and time and resource. And so is it just the tech or do you give them the sort of the process and the they have to should come in and meet you and this is how it how it No, the work? process is totally up to them. I mean, we don't make any, you know, we don't take any of the credit risk. It's uh, we provide them the data and then they make the decision um, their credit team will make the decision in terms of whether to do the loan. So how they do that and what process they might have in place, but a big part of what typically takes very long is the fact that the data piece, the credit analysis piece, is, is what typically takes a very right. long time. Okay. Um, obviously, they might have processes in place. So, you know, in, in large banks, obviously, they're getting hundreds of applications mm. um, for, for loans. And let's say you do make it to credit committee stage, which are the people who mm. make the decision. You know, if you're sort of seeing uh, that one that one credit committee that's happening that month, and you're not in that batch of ten, mm. and you're not in the next month's batch of ten, and the next month's batch of ten, then you can see how the the numbers add up. But I think sure. the biggest challenge is that. Um, the, reality, the same amount of time and money to underwrite a loan of 2 million, sure. 20 million, 200 million. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty clear where, where banks will focus their attention. So does this break Oak North into two companies, a, a tech platform company and the you know the SME lending? Yeah, exactly. So, so the results that came out uh, this week were for Oak North. Um, the sort of Acon Oak North group, the holding company, that's, that includes the sister entity, Acon Machine. But obviously Acon Machine hasn't even had a full year of, of sure. operations yet, so we don't have um, results to share on that. So you, you're also talking about international, international, can't even say the word, expansion yesterday. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, I think, we've kind of taken a slightly different uh, approach than perhaps, you know, the Revoluts, the N26s, Monzos, and so on, in that we said, given our proposition, given our model, we don't think that the most effective way for us to scale is by trying to get a banking license in other markets and build you know, a fantastic originations team and a great credit committee and the whole marketing function. We just said, 
actually we think the more effective way to, to scale is by licensing out our intellectual property, our tech platform to other lenders. And then, um, you know, in terms of what we've achieved here in the UK, £1.2 billion loan book in two years, that's the loans have directly helped to create over 5,100 new homes, 4,000 new jobs. You can almost multiply that multiplier effect mm. by leveraging, by licensing it out to other banks so that they can then do the same in their own economies. It's a really interesting model because we've seen scalable capital, I guess, go that route on robo-advisors and then say, yeah. actually, we'll part with banks. I guess we've seen Moven open their own cabbage, thing and know, then cabbage. Uh, yeah. It almost seems it's a, uh, it's a brand new play in the fintech mm. playbook of actually, how do we convince these big players that our infrastructure is right? Well, we'll show you it's right by creating and running a massively successful business. And now you want this, then here's the, the platform yeah, to do Yeah, it's the opposite of, you know, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> like, yeah. I think, you know, that's, that's it. I think um, it's, it's sort of proving the concept, uh, proving the hypothesis. Hopefully, I mean, we had no idea that we'd get these figures. You know, we, we thought that after two years, we would reach a £250 million loan book. We've reached £1.2 billion, And that's not because we've taken undue credit risk or, or lent to businesses that we wouldn't have otherwise lent to. I think a big part of it has actually been from, you know, Brexit. Sorry to bring that up. But I, I do think, um, you know, that's been a big part of it because larger banks have retrenched even more from the market than they, they already sure. were. And as a result, we've been able to gain some of that market share. And I guess open banking, PSD2, CMA uh, remedy uh, uh, APIs yeah. feed into Acorn machines even more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you know, obviously, we're not on the sort of on the the data side. We're not a transactional bank. So, yeah. um, but that being said, you know, we we are talking to fintech partners. Um, I think Altfi put out a a piece, you know, that we were in um, Monzo's marketplace for savings. So um, that is another way, another route. You know, obviously, we we offer savings accounts which help to fund our lending. Um, and and they'll play a, a significant role there. That's great. So, is there anything that uh, that the audience might uh, might be interested in, or that you're looking for uh, um, talent or customers? I mean, or? we're always looking for talent. I think um, you know any any brilliant um, you know data scientists. Um, you know, we're always looking uh, to grow the Acorn team. And anyone in sort of business development or sales side, um, we're looking. We we just opened um, quite recently a New York office for Acorn Machine. Um, we've just opened a Singapore office, oh, wow. um, so we've got uh, two people now in Singapore, and we're going to be having one in continental Europe as well. Uh, so, um, you know, watch this space, and um, yeah, just uh, just drop us a line if you're interested. Well, great, Valentina, thanks for joining us. Right, so moving on. Um, Yolt connects to RBS, NatWest, and Ulster Open Banking APIs. So um, Yolt has announced that they've officially connected with six banks. So RBS NatWest, Ulster Lloyds, Halifax, and Bank of Scotland. Um, are we uh, yeah, particularly excited about this, or is it just RBSG and LBG? Right, let's, let's just do two things. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was just about to say. Yeah. They've not connected with six banks. They've connected with two. Um, but Yolt... Um, really interesting app, doing the PFM stuff. Um, also, what I like, uh, we've mentioned this before, Yolt is actually a project that's spun out under ING, the Dutch bank. So this is a big bank doing a different brand to do market entry in a really interesting way. They're doing all the obvious stuff. It's helped me manage my money, helped me aggregate my accounts. They, they do have interesting plans in front of that. Uh, and they're using live APIs with live data. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, there's... Uh, Four out of six are essentially the same here, aren't they? Yeah, no, agreed. I agree. I think, but what they are doing um, is they're delivering a, a PFM app that is actually meaningful and useful and applicable in my day-to-day -day life. So, yes, they aggregate my balances. Yes, they give me a safe to spend, which is, like, super meaningful. 
Um, and also, you know, they've got really good plans to um, look at sort of switching um, like service providers, that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it's I probably for me as good as we've seen in, in this sort of aggregation PFM space. And it's going to be really interesting to see where these PFM services go this year, because by the first half of this year, there'll be more and more of these APIs integrated. There'll be more and more data there. The the services, the PMF the PFM services will be in the hands of more customers and then you'll start to get that feedback. You'll start to nail down what the real use cases are because PFM's really broad, right? You're right. It's, it's As huge. a concept, and super, super broad. What, what is it that people want uh, help with when managing their money and where do those use cases really, really land? And I think we'll start to answer that question towards the kind of second half of this year. And I think what, what what's interesting and what we will also see is um, I think, consumer expectations shift upwards quite dramatically i think you know what we've seen so far hasn't gone much further beyond just sort of simple categorization but even that at the time when you know players like monzo came to market people were like wow because they just didn't have it before but the fact is we've got these resources now and i think actually you know there's going to be a step change in terms of what customers expect moving Mm. forward from these and do customers even want that you know Peter Drucker famously said, customers rarely buy what companies think they sell. And, you know, that's... Love that quote. It's a great quote. And it's, um, you know, it's a classic. Well, we're going to put some stuff out there. We're going to see what people pick up and we're going to see what they don't. And I think by the end of the year, PFM services will look more different just because the engagement with different parts of that service will start to show what they need to focus on if they're getting the analytics on it and they're really really adjusting around it and it's about getting that sort of global snapshot and those quite clever algorithms so that you can actually start to push things in a meaningful way to uh, to customers can i ask yeah, just the maybe thoughts I'm not, I'm not the question asker i realize that but mm-hmm. <laughs> We've been talking about you know people uh, who are unbanked or in, in difficult situations, and also we always hear on the on the financial news that we are getting into that debt bubble again. If you have this information and you can see I either save or I invest, or if I don't do this, I do that. I guess it's useful, even if it's small amounts. If you are really more cognizant of the fact that you're spending you know 10 pounds every two days on something that you don't really need but you could actually be putting that into something and getting your debt down or saving it somewhere else we don't save because that's no, you're the right. other thing. And, and and you're right that that nudge um approach is important i think in the short term i think longer term there is something around education and financial literacy because in the uk it's just not something that we there's do always well. too much month left at the end of the money yeah that's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and so um again i suppose london fintech week lots of sort of um fintech related stories but monzo has announced this week as well that they've reached five hundred thousand customers and this is five hundred thousand banking customers this isn't just people with cards this is bona fide deposit um, having like bank customers, which is you know pretty significant that they managed to they had six hundred thousand cards. Now they got five hundred thousand bank customers. There was a I remember saying six months ago, great. Will that con- you're a bank now? Will it convert? I think the answer you're is right. yes. And it's 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 not a gimme when you're sort of trying to convert people over from what is a, a basic payment card to a full service current account. And this is UK only, isn't it? Right. It it's so this number um, doesn't sound great compared to the one point five million Revolut has or to uh, to to many others, but that. The, for one country, that's actually quite significant. I was just ask how many cards are there now, do you think? So they've got 500,000. Well, so they've actually turned off the ability to have a card without a current account. So if you sign up for Monzo now, you're signing up for a current account. Um, and I think the, the interesting thing to me is that during that journey, like for the first time, 
I'd heard rumbles of, ooh, Monza have tried really hard to convert me. I was standing in a line at a checkout and it was like trying to ask me to convert to a current account. So it's the first time I've seen them be user hostile. But at the other side, if you look at the stats they just published on uh, diversity and inclusion, Which like that, that was how to do it. Like, that, that is how to do it. And they're so transparent. And I mean, that has been a thing, the sort of fintechs that we've seen anyway, but that, that level of transparency is awesome. I mean, it was like, here was our gender breakdown in 2016, 17, 18. Here's what we're doing to improve it. Here is our uh, kind of uh, people of color breakdown. Here's our different um, diversity in terms of um, uh, LGBT and, uh, and, and what we're doing to improve that. And I think all the stats, all the charts is very different to the kind of the big bank approach of like, here's the number and then here's a lot of PR around it trying and make that sound less bad than it is. Monzo's numbers weren't far off the industry's numbers, um, and uh, you know, obviously they, they didn't uh, publish the pay side of it yet. But this is a this is an interesting way to get ahead of that um, from a from a disclosure standpoint. Yeah, and I think what I really liked about it was that they were, you know, I suppose committing to their workforce, sort of replicating the UK society. And that's where we need to be, right? And people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And I think all those things kind of like add into the kind of the brand perception that that, that Monzo is starting to build now. And that's only going to benefit them as they start to progress out of their kind of early adopter audience and into kind of broader, more mainstream uh, customer types. Uh, because what attracted the early adopters to Monzo will be very, very, very different to what attracts a more mainstream audience. And it's those kind of things that will will, will kind of start to attract them. Agreed. So 11fspulse.com to view full end-to-end journeys from behind the secure login in our competitor insights platform. Right, so moving swiftly on. From UK fintech to a high-flying German fintech that's looking to crack the US. So N26 goes stateside. This is super interesting. So... Um, German app-only bank N26 has raised $160 million from German insurer Allianz and Chinese messaging and payment giant Tencent. So that's exciting. Um, They've got 850,000 customers across 17 European markets, and the Series C funding is going to go towards US and UK launches later this year. This is exciting, right? Yeah, and I just looked at that number, 850,000 across 17 European countries. And you go back to the Monzo number, 500,000 in one market, That's that puts that into perspective a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's great. I mean, the really interesting thing here is Tencent have, have invested in yeah, this. That's, and, and that's the story that, here. Yeah, it? exactly. And um, we heard last year that uh, Tencent were expanding we, WeChat and WePay into European markets, uh, mainly to serve the kind of the Chinese uh, tourists in Europe. Um, but I can't help but think here that Tencent have like a really big interest in in kind of investing in startups like N26 to help their kind of international growth outside of China, as well as support the growth of N26 into the UK and the US. And I think it's interesting, US market entry for banks has typically been very, very hard. You either buy a bank that's already there, um, like uh, BBVA did with BBVA Compass, um, RBS did with Citizens. That's one way to do it. Um, The other way is to try and do market entry, but it just hasn't worked. And there are so, it's what, 11,000 banks in the US, but it's really dominated by... The US banking market's quite unique. It's it's really different. Um, And so this is going to be an interesting one to watch because obviously you've got Peter Thiel behind the scene as a major investor, um, former PayPal, um, now doing all sorts of stuff uh, with all kinds of connections. 
N26 might be able to get this done, but the regulatory scheme uh, over there is, is starting to change, but it's still quite complex. I mean, you've kind of got the point where the OCC has this new fintech charter. Um, so the Office of the Controller, Comptroller, Comptroller of the Currency, which is a... What does that word mean? It's not controlling, it's compt trolling. But anyway, the trolling... I like mean. how you get like compt trolling it sounds yeah. like a like a twitter yeah. yeah twitter war but yeah so the, the fintech market there is changing slowly uh but it, it, it's going to be an interesting one to watch to see if they can one can they can they get the licenses they need two can they attract and retain customers three can they hit profit and then four if they can do all of that then can tencent have a partner that pushes we chat comptroller someone who swears at competitions Maybe. I feel like we've gone through a different radio. What's the Radio 4 show where you somebody makes up a word and then we have to come up with a definition? <laughs> it's a different podcast, Monty. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, on that note, um, I think it's time for a quick break. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. Welcome back to Fintech Insider News, where we have Googled the definition of controller, and it is, in fact, a controller. <laughs> With a silent P. With a silent P. How silent is it, though? Comptroller. It's just it's an awkward word. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find it at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email, hello at 11FS. I want people to email with like other words that are just stupidly awkward. Email hello at 11FS.com with words that are stupidly awkward and or maybe you want to build a bank or something. But you know, that, that, that too. Are so unnecessarily undifferentiated from the word they actually mean. My mate said to me the other day the word menu-y, M-E-N-N-U-I. And it's the act of going into a really nice pub looking at the menu and just getting so confused by bored that you walk out of the pub. Wow. Menu-y. Did anyone else just assume it was the plural of menu? <laughs> Have you got any menu-y? I, I thought it was like a mini-me of a menu, like, you know, wouldn't, or a minion oh, like of a, a menu. a small menu. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Menu minions. <laughs> you heard it here first. What are we on? Like Minions 5 or something? Uh, who knows? Um, but speaking of Minions... Yes, indeed. Virgin Money and Aberdeen Standard uh, in retail asset managed tie-up. So under the agreement, Virgin Money's 200,000 retail investment customers will gain access to fund management services and technology from Aberdeen Standard Investments. This is just a partnership, right? It sounds to me like a straightforward partnership. Should we move on? Yeah, let's move on. So, from asset management to credit management and an unlikely champion. So, Michael Sheen has decided to scale back his acting career to devote himself to campaigning against high-interest credit providers like Wonga and Brighthouse 
and working to find fairer alternative sources of credit. So there's there's fist pumps in the room. This story was submitted to Finn by Emma Kinuanu. So I think the thing for me is Michael Sheen, um, you know, from Port Talbot in Wales, a, a community that's that, that's had its um, fair share of um, of hardships of late. I think he's witnessed these hardships firsthand, Elena, and has I think wanted to. Uh, I guess, row in and do something to help. Wasn't he Jesus? Didn't he walk through Port Talbot going through the Stations of the Cross? Anyone want to come in on that? I have no idea. He definitely did. In, in a film or just on no, a Saturday just a afternoon? No, it's kind of an art thing. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just walking up with the cross. Well, that's one up from being uh, Brian Clough, isn't it? <laughs> and still better, still better than being Charlie Sheen. Right? Yes, who I confused him with recently. <laughs> Monty, can you just drop in the anecdote anyway? Because we all want to hear it. Oh, my mate said his investor said, "What are you doing?" He said, "You're coming with me," and he spent one hundred and ten thousand dollars for uh, dinner with Charlie Sheen. Uh, and I can't possibly tell you on air what they did, on how they did it, and for how long they did it. But all of the stories that you could imagine about what was his tiger's phase, I suppose you yeah, call yeah, tiger it. Blood. Tiger blood, absolutely. Um, all, all, that was Winning. All, that access was... It, my, it, my mate said it was like going out with Caligula. Wow. You know. Well, so, um, Michael Sheen, you got something to follow there with your virtuous uh, campaign against high-cost lenders. And I think this is a positive campaign, right? We've seen far too much. I mean... The, the the Bright House ones, um, so it's not just the payday lenders, it's the people who let you buy things on layaway, as they say in, in the States. This idea that like you buy a TV or some consumer electronics, but you're paying a really high interest rate, but they tell you what it costs you per week, so it sounds like it's not a lot of money. This is really predatory, um, and there needs to be a way to communicate really clearly with people uh, to make sure that they understand that they have other credit options. Like, if your fridge breaks down, if your boiler breaks down, down there are other credit options and i hope fintech come and start to to make make a difference between this also shout out to producer laura because she um the way she could um introduce this story was michael sheen quits acting goes vigilante i like a bit of vigilante laura's use of the words i could tell it was laura that had written it because you do like the word vigilante so going back to sort of emailing um emailing like hello at 11fs.com like i will consider it a life goal when someone does actually just email laura 11fs.com with a collection of creative emojis i push it as hard as i can and but also so look you know picking this one up again isn't there again something here around financial awareness and financial literacy because why does everybody know about high cost credit providers like wonga and bright house but nobody knows about the not-for-profit loan organizations like moneyline scott kasha street uk there is something here tv advertising i would suggest yeah. and, and there's great services like the money advice service out there where you can actually go and, and learn about what your options are and um step change which are a charity that help people People who are in distress and and can help you uh, and and it's not debt consolidation in other words it's not giving you a loan to consolidate your loans it's actually working with creditors and helping you write off some things and and build a payment plan and this that kind of stuff is is to be encouraged and i think hopefully we see more of that and i think so um i was always encouraged by um what barclays did with digital eagles and helping people feel technology included i i, I think things like that from the major high street institutions could again be good brand builders around there are these services out there and let's partner with them and let's put our marketing money behind that agreed and if we're talking about marketplaces fundamentally being sort of rooted in financial wellness um, people who don't feel digitally confident, like you said, are automatically excluded from that, and that's a real issue. 
I think the timing as well, because people wait until someone's in distress to tell them what's happened to them. So it wouldn't happen as much as if you knew beforehand where you were heading. I didn't have a single five minutes of education about money, ever. And I did A-levels. But this is the issue. Yeah, it's totally the issue. My father did some dodgy things, and so my education was, you know, came home and there was no bed. So you go, something like that, right? So you kind of think, I should learn about money. Wasn't it your dad that's German? No. No, My, other was, way my father was Italian. That ah. makes sense. That makes sense. My, my mate's um, dad was a copper policeman, and they could never understand why the two kids went to private school based on the cop's salary. And later in life, they asked him, and this is a true story, and he said, well, to tell you the truth, we used to print the fucking money. <laughs> and you can't do it now because it's all like direct debt. But I just thought that was just amazing. They're just printing money and paying the school fees with the money. I'd love to do that. So, speaking, <laughs> speaking of printing money, um, WhatsApp is entering the payment space in India. So, you know, there's already 200 million Indians using WhatsApp, the messaging service. So WhatsApp is now piloting a payment service that lets them transfer money to each other. Where do we uh, where do we come down on this one? India is the battleground for the yep. big tech giants. East meets West. You have uh, WeChat um, and uh, Tencent. You have Alipay all making a play for there. You have um, Paytm, which is local, uh, and um, Google Tez are there, and now WhatsApp. To me, this is going to be the one to watch. Um, and whilst this one's still in test phase and it's only available to a fraction of Indian users, it's compatible with the country unified payments interface uh, to facilitate real-time transactions and uh, that works with the multi-bank umbrella company the national payments corp of india so this is going for a certain segment of society this isn't definitely this is going for people who probably already have bank accounts um, probably are um, more middle class but that have may have maybe have whatsapp so urban, it's, urban india yeah absolutely. not rural india yeah I don't think this is a surprising move either. If you look at it from another angle, which is um, you look at kind of Facebook's growth, user growth has been phenomenal over the past few years, but their kind of ARPU growth outside of the EU and the US the has been... ARPU, average revenue per user, <laughs> yeah. ARPU. ARPU. It sounds like a chap from India. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it, man. Damn. We may want to cut that one out, guys. <laughs> Yeah, slightly um, culturally inappropriate, but <laughs> still quite funny though. But anyway, um, <laughs> Ryan, please get us back on track. <laughs> Facebook's um, Facebook's average revenue per user growth outside of the EU and the US has been fairly flat, or m- it's only modestly growing outside of those, those those territories. And then you start looking at well, their advertising business is under attack right now, and also. Um, when you're in markets like India or Africa where the cellular networks are very immature, people don't have time or the money to dwell watching advertising. And so Facebook clearly need new um, revenue models in these markets to, to um, kind of continue their growth, not just in user growth, but in revenue growth. And this is, seems like an obvious way to, 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 to start doing that. With the tech backlash as well, it, it actually having diverse revenue streams other than just advertising is probably going to be valuable in the long term. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a business model that kind of grew up in China because that was the first growing middle class where you know, advertising wasn't the default and mobile was the default. So it's going to be an interesting one to I think watch. you should also be careful with that with India because it's had a very, it's a very mature 
mature advertising company. It's not like a bunch of idiots that just suddenly joined the West. I mean, their Bollywood industry and their TV industry, and by definition, their, their advertising industry is extremely mature. Um, and this type of thing, I think, would be, I think it's a, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Really significant. What's interesting to me is um, there's an actual early lead uh, from Google Tez. Um, so Google That's Tez, putting it mildly, isn't it? What's that? That's putting it mildly. Yeah, well, 52% of a pie chart I'm looking at. I'm not sure of the source of this pie chart, but um, which then Paytm has 23% of whatever that pie chart represents. Um, so that uh, you know, looks like a significant early lead in this market space. Uh Got to be interesting to watch how this one plays out because the early winners aren't necessarily the ones that win out. But we have uh, Pulse Plug, Pulse Plug, Google Tez on Pulse. And every time I've taken a look at it, really, really slick. Because Really it's- cool. And they're doing some like wildly different things like ultrasonic P2P transfers, right? Like that's pretty cool. That's the kind of stuff that really stands out. What is that? Yeah, exactly. 11fspulse.com. So it's like they're using sound to... So rather than having an NFC chip, because your phone might not have all of these fancy chips and devices in it, you could do it on a low-grade Android smartphone. You can actually make some sound that wakes up the other device and says, I want to do peer-to-peer transfer. Oh, that's that's like the blind whistler. Do you know about that story? It was a US college student when telephony had started, and it was in an abusive... His parents were in an abusive relationship. So to get away from the noise as a blind person, he used to ring up the talking clock. And then, and because he had perfect pitch as a, you know, you know accentuated uh, senses, he realised that if he whistled into the phone, it made out that the phone had hung up, but it actually hang, hadn't hung up. So he got free phone calls. So he was really famous around campus because people used to follow him, A, to see him do the... <laughs> Uh, and get free phone calls. It's a great story to read. It's a brilliant story. It's innovative. It's it's entrepreneurial. I I absolutely love it. I think. Is anybody else thinking of Police Academy? <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are now. Uh, that's probably the first ultrasonic peer to peer. Maybe. It's, well, there, you heard it here first. The the birthplace of ultrasonic P two P. Simon, I can in fact again thank you to the virtues of producer Laura confirm that the pie chart, the ambiguous pie chart, has come from Credit Suisse and looks at the share of UPI transaction volumes as of December 2017. Right, so this is the people using bank transactions on the. So it's not people who have just wallets. It's it's using kind of um, the universal payment, whatever it's called. So moving on to something completely different and a little bit sad, Uber driverless car crash. So um, Uber has halted the self-driving tests um, after a pedestrian has been killed in Arizona. We reckon it would make the pedestrian one of the first known victims of a crash involving a self-driving car. Oh, I thought they were talking about the board. The board. Well, Uber driverless car crash. It sounds like their business. <laughs> Sorry, I got that wrong. So, I mean, certainly in the days of uh, Travis Kalanick. Yeah, well, uh, but it, yeah, and, and the people that tried to advise that, right? I mean, um, but this is an interesting one because uh, tech generally has this optimism that surrounds it. And we're in this interesting wave now with the tech backlash with everything that's happening with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, where that's coming home to roost. And generally, the view is changing. Driverless cars had this, oh my God, it's amazing optimism around them. And now it's started, it's inevitably done what it would do eventually is that it would hit somebody. Now, what people don't talk about here is how incredibly safe this is compared to humanity. Um, but that said, it was always going to be a sensation when this happened. And there was a safety driver in the car. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what I don't understand. How did that happen if there's a safe drive in the car? Apparently, uh, it was extremely dark. Um, and so the sensors just didn't work and didn't pick up the person. But also, it was so dark and dingy and hard to see that the human didn't. So the reality is here, the self-driving car has made a mistake, but so did the human. Right? So we, the, the rea- this headline might be, um, self-driving car doesn't manage to prevent a crash that a human couldn't prevent. Well, if you wanted to go back to India there, I live in Brighton. And it has a population of about 120,000 people every year in India. 120,000 people fucking die on the roads. 120,000. I mean, it'll get to a point they'll come down, but it's still going up. And this story, that one Uber, I mean, who cares? But the same, I think on the same day on the news here, there was a, a piece on the driverless cars that are in Greenwich, on Greenwich Peninsula, because yeah. they've been going around for a while. And the reporter announced the stat that for only 43, he said, well, 43% of people would, would use it. And I thought, but that's, and then 47% wanted safety uh, checks and other things on it. So 43 would use it, 47% really wanted it to be better. I'm like, this is not a good, great, we're not there yet, are we? We're not there yet. We're not there. I went, I did, I went in my first driverless car in Riga at a conference about six weeks ago. Um, and it was busy car park and it was really icy but it was really, really shit. You know what I mean? I, I remember being a kid and getting a kind of like computer input card. It was called a computer car. And you put it in and it went round and then it learned to, to go, I'm using my hands and clearly I'm on the radio. Um, <laughs> but, but it was just so, you're right, it was just so kind of analogue almost. You know, it's just like, okay, so we can go around the air. And now, oh, now look, watch, we can go around the Years and years and years and years and years. So we're not quite there in terms of sophistication. I think also in terms of um, public perception, I guess people are just naturally afraid of, of change on that scale. It's quite an easy story to sell to the mainstream media. I, it has sensationalism, but very little um, meat to it. It's not. A, it's one of those stories that sells, but that isn't a story kind of thing. It's. It's. It, but it, the the broader context of uh, we live in rapid change of what that means for financial services. We obviously cover on InsureTech Insider. There was an episode all about autonomous vehicles. Right, and, okay. and, I'd love uh, to hear that. You know, what does that mean for insurance? And yeah. what does that mean for uh, you know kind of uh, financial services generally? What does it mean for our lives? And and I think uh, it, that's an interesting context to to start to think about. Uh, you know, how will uh, how will my financial life change if I don't need to own a car anymore? The car just turns up when I need it. Um, and and are we building pension plans? Are we building? Are we helping people think for a world that 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 is? I think I think you're looking at subscription models. Yeah, that's what I think an electric car will be. It'll it'll just be like. Netflix. Uh, I was going to say Netflix, Spotify. The subscription model seems to be the model that's... Why would it be different for driverless cars? So, our, and finally, stories this week, we're changing up charitable giving. So, this one from the FT. The Church of England is to accept donations by contactless payments. My favourite thing about this story is that the co-founder of Isettle on Tuesday declared it was a match made in heaven. Ooh. Dive in. Dive in, everyone. How about that? <laughs> Oh, I missed the collection plates. <laughs> the 
this is not going to be the same, is it? You've got to go to a church and kind of get the collection plate or the hat or whatever it is. Yeah, there's no shame if you can't in. actually go pretend that there's no money in your purse. You know what I mean? Yeah, you need exactly. a bit of shame. <laughs> your contactless card will still work. You can't have a lack of con- change in your bank otherwise. Yeah. It's just going to be, you know, like during the service, during the service when they're going, you're just going to get these con- like continuous like beep <laughs> when you're tapping your card. Isn't that going to be quite distracting? God, I'm so surprised so many people around this table go to church. Well, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, the demo, what's the crossover of people who regularly use contactless cards and who also go to church? Ah, that would be an interesting statistic. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, apparently, you can pull out your mobile phone or your wearable to, to oh, make the payment. That's taking it to a whole new... Imagine in church making a donation with your Apple Watch. It could be done. Oh, there's a gag somewhere here and I just can't find it. I really can't. All right, and um, pray for moving, the guy. Yeah, moving on from that, our final story this week: Rooster Money, which is an app designed to help parents teach their kids about the value of money, teams up with Just Giving to make it easier for children to donate to charity. So this one took me a minute. I'm going to be completely honest. So the kid in the app selects a charity that it's passionate about helping. It makes a donation request which is then reviewed and, I guess, approved or not approved by mum or dad. What do we think of this? Well, I, th- I think it, it sounds a bit clunky, but the concept of it I like, you know. having I mean, I've got kids and I would like them to understand that there's a wider world around them and that they're not all as advantaged as they are. Um, but this sounds like a quite clunky way of, of, of doing it. But, you know, having that, those tools available to me as a parent I think is a really positive thing I, I think as parents you start off right you think god our kids are getting so much right this year godmother you're giving 50 quid to charity if you made if you made this type of thing mandatory for children you know what I mean that you had to kind of give up two presents mm. and then you would use it it would make it even clunkier but you know, it, in essence, it's a nice idea. Well, an, an app to give away, like, old toys. Yeah. yeah. Because your house just gets completely overwhelmed with toys <laughs> <laughs> eventually. But and even, I mean, know, just take, taking it back to, I guess, the, the wider social context. I mean, most of these sort of parent-kid apps are about teaching kids about the link between, like, work. you know, there's a chore element often. We've talked about this before on the show. You know, you do chores and you get X amount of money. But there is something in this about actually linking it to i guess like social awareness and saying you know that you this, you this can, is how you help people it's giving a different message it's not just work makes money it's like sometimes people need help um and there are different messages that the, the the context and messages that you can start to start to promote and and it comes down to jobs to be done ultimately right yeah and it's it's kind of following this through and making it all full circle so once they've done the the donation they the, the the children actually get to see the impact and without or what would happen if we weren't donating this money and people like you weren't donating this money what would happen to the people that you know rely on these charities and not for profit and you're right that is that is important in terms of closing the circle it's one thing to make the link between mm-hmm. i guess like money and, and helping people but actually showing them that otherwise it's just an app where you're just giving away money yeah you know can i ask do you think there's a difference between people kids who actually do something you know when you have the bake sale when you take you do something with sport relief or you do something within schools that's connected by some you know satellite to another school in africa for example is it is it slightly diminished by taking away the physical experience of it and making it a bit kind of autopilot yeah yeah, i'll give my pound versus i'll 
go do something and actually stand there in the rain and do something? I don't know. They never look at the orphaned elephant, man. It comes in the post and there's Nelly the fucking elephant. It's really nice, you know, or Peter the leopard. And that's it. You know, anything that improves that, that experience. Can I just say that for me that is a worthy final word so on that note this wraps up this week's news show nearly the elephant thank you so much to all of our guests where can people find out more about you ryan uh twitter um at ryan garner oh you did well with the twitter handle you did really well we've talked about this i'm still rock zero seven there's six other people got in before me um, Monty, where can people find out more about you and Nelly the fucking elephant? <laughs> so many places. And that sounds like a double um, act. It's Monty Mumford, and the word Mumford is not like that shitty fucking band. It's Munford, not Mumford. With a silent P. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but I would add also that uh, I'm moderating a crypto event at the Step Conference in Dubai. Uh, for most of next week it's a brilliant conference the people that run it are really nice people so if you are at the conference listening to this then reach out I'm on stage all day awesome thanks Monty Elaine where can we find out more about you I can find out more about Mimi at H Panzerino Only you did quite well as well uh, and if you want to find more about Rainmaking it's at Rainmaking Collab Fintech the amazing Simon Taylor uh, that would be a good Twitter handle. But no, I'm just at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com. Thanks, Simon. And as for me, you can find me at RossGallagher07 on Twitter or RossGur at 11FS.com. That's G-U-H. If you email G-U-H, so this has been a not-so-recent development, it will come to me. It's now set up as an alias of my actual email. RossGUH at 11FS.com. Emojis. RossGur. Ross as always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you would like to send us an email. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. Five stars only. Yeah, well, I mean, if you liked what Monty had to say about Nelly the Elephant and Peter the fucking Leopard. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.